Okay, guys, welcome back to the Fairly Lame Podcast. My name is Dom, and today we have a whole heap of feel-good conservation stories. And so just a couple announcements before we get into the video. And so every day we'll try to do a Fairly Lame News, five of my favorite news stories from that day, all feel-good or environmental sustainability, conservation, all that good stuff over on TikTok and Instagram. We'll go up Instagram stories or just on TikTok at Fairly Lame. Every day, we'll try our best. Some days might be a bit light on. Um, but yeah, if you need a dose, if you're feeling down, if the world has got you down learning about all the horrible things we're doing to this planet, hopefully uh, Fairly Lame and the content we make can you know lift the spirits and keep the hope alive. Anyway, that's about it. These videos, this podcast will now be Mondays, 3 p.m. Mondays, everyone hates it. Except for me, because I don't do anything. But get home from work, or the last couple hours of work, you know, you're just trying to get through the day. A couple more coffee breaks, a couple toilet breaks, you know, you start going every half an hour. But now you get to listen to the Fairly Lame podcast. It's the highlight of everyone's week. I've already heard it. <laughs> the, uh, the two people that listen, they've all told me that. My mum and my dad. Anyway, let's get into the video. So the first story we have today is on bioscience, talking about rewilding the American West. I'd love to see this here in Australia. I don't know how successful it would be. Uh, due to all the farming and whatnot going on and just the type of environment that we're living in. But let's see what they're doing over in uh, the great lands of America. So President Biden signed an executive order announcing his America the Beautiful plan to conserve 30% of US land and water by 2030. So he wants to conserve, connect and restore the lands, waters and wildlife upon which we all depend. So, uh, in general, rewilding aims to re-establish vital ecological processes that can improve, that can involve removing troublesome non-native species and restoring key native species. And I think this has already been done in either Yellowstone or Yosemite National Park with wolves uh, to help with deer population. Might want to check, uh, fact check me there, but. Um, so wolves are going to be another focus of uh, this rewilding initiative. So focusing on the grey wolf, a wide-ranging species requiring extensive areas of habitat. Grey wolves are large, were largely eradicated from the American West following Euro-American colonisation and manifest conquest of the West. I don't know what that is. Um, so through measures afforded by the US Endangered Species Act uh, in the mid to late 1990s, grey wolves were reintroduced to portions of the northern Rocky Mountains and Mexican grey wolves uh, to portions of the New Mexico and uh, Arizona. I wonder what it's like. I mean, we've got dingoes here in Australia, but they're very few and far between. I wonder, like going on a hike and seeing a pack of wolves must be one of the scariest things you can come across. I don't know how close they get to humans uh, if they try to stay away, but... Apparently, uh, the wolf's current range in the uh, 11 western states is approximately 14% of its historical range. Uh, once likely numbering in the tens of thousands, uh, there may be as few as approximately 3,500 wolves in the American West today. Um, as an apex predator, wolves can trigger strong ecological effects on prey and plants across a variety of landscapes of western North America. So I'm assuming for agricultural reasons would be the biggest factor that they were removed, but also protection. I mean, I don't know the history of wolves in America, if they had a lot of attacks or anything, but I assume it's largely with wolves uh, attacking livestock. 
and those sorts of things leading to their um, reduced extent. Um, so the grey wolf could be expanded significantly through the establishment of large reserves corresponding to patches of potential core habitat on fredgly, <laughs> fredgly, federally managed lands that cover at least 5,000 square kilometres. So, but that's, they're not just looking at wolves. They've got two species that they're looking at, wolves and beavers. This is, I haven't heard of this before. I'd heard the wolf one talked, uh, talked about a couple years ago, but beavers. Beaver restoration forms a second key feature of our rewilding proposal. Beaver populations has, had once been robust across the American West, but were decimated by an estimated 90 to 98% in wake of settler colonization um, and now extirpated, extirpated from many streams. I think that just means removed. But it's strange to think that beavers faced more of a reduction than wolves. So like up to 98% reduction, but then wolves... In the West, at least, uh, they only they lost what they were at fourteen percent. They're currently sitting at about fourteen percent of their historical range, where beavers are at two percent. So that, that's very strange. I'm thinking, I'm assuming this has to do with um, water resources and those sorts of things. By felling trees and shrubs and building dams, beavers enrich fish habitat, increase water and sediment retention. Maintain water flows during drought, provide wet fire breaks, improve water quality, initiate recovery of incised channels, increase carbon sequestration, and generally enhance habitat for many riparian plant and animal species. Beaver restoration is a cost-effective means of repairing degraded riparian areas. Although riparian areas occupy less than 2% of the landscape, they provide habitat for up to 70% of wildlife species. So, I don't know how far in. Do they say how far in this is? So, this was 9th of August, so a couple of weeks ago now. Um, let's see. So, finally, we catalogued the threatened and endangered plant and animal species, including subspecies and distinct populations that had at least 10% of their ranges within the Western Rewilding Network. For each of these species, we determined threats, uh, blah, blah, blah. And so, they currently include the Western Rewilding Network includes 92 threatened and endangered species across nine taxonomic groups. So, a couple or five amphibians, five birds, two crustaceans. Love to know what those are. Uh, 22 fish, 39 flowering plants, 5 insects, 11 mammals, 1 reptile, and 2 snail species. So they must have a pretty in-depth uh, investigation. Like, if they're even going into conserving snails and insects, good on it. Doing the Lord's work. So, livestock grazing is ubiquitous on federal lands in the American West uh, and astoundingly even occurs within some protected areas, such as wilderness areas, wildlife refuges, and national monuments. Jesus Christ. And so they go on to say that um, the effects of livestock grazing management on riparian areas as well uh, are well known. Uh, there are also possible multi-trophic effects uh, on a host of wild animals such as herbivores, pollinators, and predators. And so something similar like this rewilding um, is proposed here in Australia, but not... 
not to the same level like fuck wolves that's pretty hectic and beavers they you'd assume they have massive impacts on the landscape which we've kind of read about especially with beavers and all the benefits they have in regards to uh the control of water but here in australia the tasmanian devil has been thrown up as potentially being reintroduced to mornington peninsula which we'll get a video or we'll get a picture up um or not mornington peninsula wilson's prom um so for those listening on Spotify, it's pretty much, it's the most southern point of mainland Australia, about three hours uh, to the east of Melbourne. And so it's a, I don't know, there's there's like a land bridge to get onto it. And so there's only one way in, one way out. And so they're thinking of building a fence, a foxproof fence um, with a bit of a channel in between, whatever, in between this section to exclude foxes from uh, Wilson's Prom and then reintroduce uh, Tasmanian devils to kind of play that role so the herbivores don't explode. But apparently, that's very unlikely to happen. And the main reason for that, I believe, is because uh, the Tasmanian government don't want it to happen because it's a massive, uh, I guess, tourist grab for them. People want to go to Tassie to see Tasmanian devils. Um and yeah, if you can see them out in the wild in Wilson's Promontory, you would assume that Tassie would lose a lot. And so apparently it is like, it, it's already feasible. It could happen. And this has been thrown up for a while, but the Tasmanian government, um, from people I've t- spoken to, it's, yeah, it's pretty much, I oh, know, just a just hope at this point. It would be very interesting. Same with dingoes. Just having a sip of coffee, uh, coffee for everyone on uh, Spotify. And if you don't like cold brew coffee, I don't know what to tell you. Honestly, the next time you go get a coffee, go to a cafe, any good cafe, um, not 7-Eleven. Can I please have a cold brew coffee, cold drip coffee, whatever they want to call it. And it will it will make your day 1,000 times better. Anyway, back to conservation. I'd love to see more dingoes reintroduced. I don't know what's going on with dingo conservation here in Australia. Someone at Deakin, you and Richie, is pretty high up. Uh, and one of the great minds in regards to Deakin, uh, not Deakin Ecology, dingo ecology um but yeah you don't really hear it tossed up a lot i'm assuming again farmers would be a really big reason for dogs preying on um their livestock but i mean i think canberra surprisingly canberra has quite a big i don't know i don't know if big is the right word it's, it's got a large enough dingo population out in the namaji national park which is out west so this mountain range had a big fire go through it uh, a couple years ago in 2019. But yeah, there's, I think, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure there's pure dingoes in Namaji National Park because I heard this story. So back to that uh, koala project that I was volunteering on. Apparently, one of the vets there, she worked for domestic animal services as the vet there, uh, which is like the pound or whatnot. So apparently this family comes in and they bring a dog in and they say, oh, we found this puppy when we were hiking in Namaji National Park and it keeps escaping from our backyard. We don't know what to do. And then the vet had a look at it. Turns out it was a purebred dingo puppy that they had stolen from Namaji National Park in Canberra. So there you go. There's definitely dingoes kicking about up there. Surprising that a puppy would have been by itself because hopefully they didn't steal the puppy from the parents. But there you go. Anyway, speaking of the Tasmanian devil... Came across some very interesting news about Tasmanian tigers, all right? So, apparently, apparently, hypothetically, Tasmanian tiger babies could be a reality within 10 years. So, for those of you who don't know, 
the Tasmanian tiger went extinct. The last one in captivity died around the 19... I think it says here. 1936, it died in um, Hobart Zoo due to exposure because they just had it in a little concrete box in winter in exposure uh, in uh, Hobart. Hobart's a shithole, respectfully. <laughs> Super cold. So if you leave it outside, obviously, it's not going to thrive. Um, and then, yeah, I put up a video on TikTok about this as well. And, yeah, so they weren't declared extinct officially until the 1980s. Because I think there's a period, I don't know how many years, but there's a period where they can't be seen. There has to be no sightings for like 10 years or something uh, in the wild before they can be declared extinct. Um, and even any, not not specifically direct sightings, but even just any um, potential, like any trails or like scats or anything like that, I think that pushes back the date. Don't quote me on that. We'll look into that uh, maybe later on. But here we go. Let's go into it. So, um, scientists say humans could see thylacines in a, in fenced off areas on the, I need more coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Scientists say humans could see thylacines in fenced off areas of the Tasmanian wilderness in a decade, close to 100 years after the species went extinct. Even though it's not 100 years, it's 100 years since they were last seen uh, in captivity. So, come on, ABC, get, get, get the facts right, buddy. Anyway, now, a University of Melbourne research lab that has been working on the de-extinction, which is a cool term, de-extinction of the Tasmanian tiger for the past 15 years has announced it has partnered with a uh, genetic engineering company to boost efforts to bring it back. So the ultimate goal of this project is not to just bring back the thylacine, but to get to a point where it can be put back into its natural environment. So it's one thing to have it into a zoo and maybe have like one specimen. I don't know how long they would last for, but to actually get it out into the wild, um, have those traits, have those instincts, um, I don't know how long that's going to take. Surely, I mean... I'm, I'm assuming it's 10 years until the first one's born, and then I'm assuming it would be a while until they're out in the wild. But who knows? But apparently, um, so they've got the technology at our fingertips. Um, there is no technology we need to bring back an animal uh, that we don't already have. Uh, and so apparently they've got DNA from thylacine species that were preserved in alcohol, and they're going to like mix the DNA with their closest living uh, relative, which is actually (laughs) a little dunna, which for those of you listening on Spotify, just think of a rat with a really fat tail. So it's a tiny thing that could potentially give birth to a thylacine. So let's see, what do we have? Um, And, okay, so Colossal is this US-based bioscience company And so um, Chris and Liam Hemsworth are like-minded impact uh, investors and says its landmark de-extinction project is the resurrection of the woolly mammoth. So these guys, uh, they must be getting into it. I don't know. I mean, the argument against this is like that we're playing God by like, like by bringing stuff back. That's, that's a whole nother level of conservation. And is that right or wrong? Um, Do you just have to like, let be what's be like is there a point where we start bringing back dinosaurs i think that might already been um thrown up it's definitely not happened but i mean we've got chickens we've got chickens so you know dinosaurs in your backyards kids um 
but yeah, I don't know. But then I've seen the argument on the other side is that we played God when we um, sent them into extinction. So I don't know how I feel about it. I think it's pretty interesting. I, I'd i love to see how it plays out. Um, but anyway, back into the article. And so we go into, this is uh, someone from Colossal, Dr. Pask, said that once um, this is understood, we go into the cells and start making edits and essentially engineer a Dunart cell into a thylacine cell. We can then use reproductive technologies such as IVF to turn the cell into a whole living organism. Um, and due to the size of these things, unlike the woolly mammoth, scientists have an advantage when it comes to growing a marsupial from conception to birth due to their small size and a short gestation period. So thylacines give birth to babies that are not much larger than or not much bigger than a grain of rice. So growing the embryo in a test tube or through a surrogate is much less challenging for a marsupial than a mammoth. So imagine this, right? Um, a dunnart could give birth to a baby thylacine, um, and once they're born, you can rear these animals on milk by recreating that artificial pouch environment. So a little rat, a, <laughs> I mean, a native rat, a native rat, rodent, whatever, could give birth, rodent or is it marsupial? Is it marsupial? I don't know. I'm not getting into this. I'm not getting into, or, or is it dasyurid? What is a dasyurid? Dasy. Urid. <laughs> hey, okay. Meaning. That's the meaning. Um, pouched mice. It could be. Um, Dunnart species. Um, a Dunnart's. They're marsupials. Okay. Um, what was I talking about? Where were we? Yeah, so imagine this little marsupial, maybe, I don't know less than 10 centimetres long, giving birth to the first thylacine in, uh, well, since the 1980s, in theory. That's, jeez. And so apparently this is going to be the trial run. And imagine the tourism opportunities. Like for Tassie, we just talked about how they don't want the Tasmanian devil going on to Wilson's Promontory. Imagine all the people that would go over to Tassie to go see a Tasmanian tiger in the wilderness. I don't even know what they were like. I don't know how aggressive they were. I don't even know what they were eating. But very cool potential. We'll stay tuned. I'm sure this will be an ongoing topic for everything. It seems like they toss up every animal that goes extinct. We'll try even dinosaurs, like we said before. Um, but yeah, cool one to keep an eye on. Now, over on Twitter from the World Economic Forum. Apparently, Madrid is planting 74 kilometer a belt of trees around their city to clean up air pollution um, and also help cool the city down as well. So this video on Twitter doesn't have any narration. So lucky for you guys, I will do that for you after I have another uh, sip of coffee. Grateful. That's some good stuff. All right. <laughs> All right, we'll just, yeah. Madrid is planting a huge forest belt around the city <laughs> to clean polluted air, absorb carbon, cool the city, and improve people's quality of life. So the forest belt will be 74 kilometers long and made up of native species, including poplars, wild olive trees, and willows. It will, play, it will feature play areas, walking paths, and cycle routes as well as provide green space on motorway bridges. 
so wildlife can move around safely, improving biodiversity. The virus is part of Madrid's anti-pollution strategy, which also includes phase bans on the most polluting vehicles and two free zero-emission bus routes. Free zero-emission bus routes. So I'm assuming uh, most polluting vehicles, hopefully they're talking about just like petrol and diesel in general, or if they're going into specific models of cars, like, you know, Volkswagen had their own issues a couple, I don't know when that was, like 2016 or whatever, when they were doing uh, the naughty. So, yeah, but again, following off the back of Canberra, I'd like to say Canberra is uh, leading the way, the hometown, hometown heroes. Um, but yeah, for those of you who don't know, Canberra, and I think Queensland as well, but Canberra, I know for sure, have proposed a ban of electric, oh no, <laughs> not electric, uh, petrol and diesel cars from 2035, around then. Lots to change, but um, yeah, so all around the world, people are catching on. And two free zero emission bus routes, that's massive. The city, oh, I just hit my nose. The city has launched a contest for design ideas uh, and hopes to start planning later this year. Urban forests can reduce air temperatures by up to 8% while making life healthier, happier, and prettier for the city dwellers. How is your area protecting its trees? And so this is off the bat. Uh, Madrid's doing incredible things. There's two initiatives. So that's the first video I wanted to show you uh, on um, James Ginger Rich on, uh, over on Twitter. And he also shared this one, again, from the World Economic Forum about a wind garden, which I have no idea how it works. Put it up on uh, TikTok. If anyone knows, please comment down below, especially how effective it actually is. Um, so yeah, Madrid is building a wind garden to cool down the city. It could lower temperature. <laughs> it could lower temperatures by four degrees. That was a massive pause. The garden has a spiral structure made of mosses and ferns, which will catch cool breezes above the treetops and draw them down to cool the garden and nearby streets, like a giant air conditioner. See, I don't know how effective that is. Like, in, like if someone told me that, I'd be like, yeah, sweet. But in reality, does that, is that actually how it works? I don't know. It's inspired by ancient Middle Eastern wind towers. I didn't know that was a thing. Which catch breezes and funnel them through homes. Madrid's average temperature, average daytime temperature is 33 degrees Celsius. But in recent summers, it has climbed as high as 40 degrees. The, the park could make walking in the city a pleasant experience, even at the height of summer meaning fewer residents fleeing the city to escape the heat or relying on air conditioning. Other cities are combating heat with similar approaches. Athens is converting unloved plots into pocket parks. Bangkok is building 11 new parks, including an eco-park featuring mangroves. Mangroves, we all know, doing the Lord's work, love them. Tulum in Mexico, building a passively cooled train station, its shape funnels sea breezes through, reducing the need for artificial uh, ventilation. How does your city keep cool in summer? That's very impressive. I don't know. So I'm living in Melbourne at the moment, and I don't know of any initiatives. I'm sure there's some, but nothing on the scale of this. We have a lot of greenery around, especially where I'm living now. Um, super green. Not good if you like having a clean car with all the pollen, but um, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. I'd love to see... I wonder how much you could feel it. Like, if you went to the city, I don't know. I don't know. It's a very lofty... I mean, how, how warm did it say? Four degrees? Could lower temperatures by four degrees. I wonder how big that area is. Like, if it's just, like... 
a 50 meter radius around this city or if they reckon it's the, uh, around this park or if they reckon it could be felt across the whole city but i mean look like we we saw earlier they're having this ring of trees to cool it by eight degrees and then uh this wind garden to cool it by potentially four degrees i mean milan sounds like it could be a very good place to be in the summertime next this is something i wish we had in australia especially for fashion but we'll touch on that a bit later on but supermarket food could soon carry eco labels says study so this is on bbc news over in uh the great united kingdom so supermarket shoppers could soon be checking the environmental impact of food before putting it in their trolleys thanks to new research so um that's because main oh okay so it hasn't been available before but they're trying to overcome this issue uh by using public databases to estimate the composition of thousands of food products and their impact. Again, I mean, already that's a, I mean, it's a bit of a red flag, like estimating their impact. That could be really detrimental if something's, you know, if someone's doing the right things, sourcing locally, whatever, organic, um, but because they use a certain ingredient, it could, you know, fall victim to an estimate which may not be entirely uh, accurate. Many consumers want to know how their weekly food shop affects the planet, even through rising prices, uh, will likely be a more immediate concern for most. So he hopes the research leads to a new uh, eco-labeling system for consumers, customers, not consumers, or both, you know, either or, piano, piano, uh, potato, potato. Um, but he believes that the bigger environmental or the bigger impact would come if the food industry uses it to cut its environmental uh, footprint. So he said the food industry has been trying, has been crying out for the new tool uh, and that the algorithm is already being used by some manufacturers and caterers to make their meals more sustainable. So now they have the data and some of them are talking to us about uh, things they can do to help people move towards more sustainable food purchasing. Uh, the data could help manufacturers adjust their formulations. And so this is a really interesting graph. So environmental impacts of foods compared. And so for those on Spotify, we'll work down uh, the bar chart. So if anyone wants to have a guess, what's at the top? Drum roll. Bang. Uh, beef and lamb um, scored... 34.72 so it doesn't have a unit uh they're just um you know scores but it'll make sense so these scores are based on the impacts of the cultivation processing and transportation of ingredients so at the top of this bar chart we have beef and lamb scoring 34.72 next we have deli meat and cheese and 9.13 so a massive drop nuts and dried fruit 7.79 just because all the transport back and forth across the world next we have fish and seafood a 6.1 which honestly that's higher than i thought it would be um but i mean you know more reason for that vegan diet baby next we have a tea so tea in general 5.44 don't know where coffee would rank i think coffee ranks pretty highly to be honest ready meals 3.17 sausage rolls 2.78 Yorkshire pudding is like, what? <laughs> why does Yorkshire pudding get its own category? Anyway, 2.15. Fresh salads and dips, 1.28. Fizzy drinks, 0.23. And so, um, researchers recorded variation within these categories. Impacts are measured 
impacts measured include those on greenhouse gas emissions and biodiversity. Interesting. Um, so yeah, they just go to note that meat and dairy score high. Um, and so should go without saying, uh, the higher the score, the higher the environmental impact. As expected, foods containing more meat and dairy score much higher than those with more plant-based ingredients. By contrast, many meat alternatives such as plant-based sausages or burgers have between a fifth and less than a tenth of the environmental impact of uh, meat-based equivalents. Doing the Lord's work. Say less. Say less. Shut your lips, BBC, <laughs> BBC News. Uh, for example, the highest impact pork sausage scored about a third higher than the least impactful. So this is just touching on the variation within the ingredients, which I kind of talked about at the start, how this could kind of throw it off a little bit. Um, and the impact of biscuits rose, the more chocolate they contained, showing that small recipe changes could make a big difference. If you look at the government strategy on achieving net zero uh, around food systems, they are not measuring actual greenhouse gas emissions. Instead, the recommendation is to reduce meat consumption. Um, that's okay because meat has the highest greenhouse gas emissions, but you miss a target, um, but you miss a massive t amount <laughs> in multi-ingredient foods, which had previously had no reduction targets uh, based on them whatsoever. I guess that is a good point because you know we do need to like discarding meat from your diet or eating little and little over time is obviously going to do great things. Um, but yeah, this whole heap of different ways you can reduce this impact. Like if you're vegan or vegetarian, pescatarian, whatever, you're already cutting out a massive amount of emissions. But then it might be little things like I'm guilty. Love one of the great meals you can have, especially when you're studying mid-work, uh, don't want to do anything, making a cheese and tomato toasty. Get that. Oh, what is it? Bio... It's this like sliced cheese, like dairy-free cheese. It's called like bio something. You can buy it at Woolworths. It's the best. Bit of tomato on there. The grouse. Anyway, having tomatoes in winter isn't great because it's out of season, uh, grown in greenhouses or imported. So it is better to eat locally. So I'll call myself out for that. But I do wish we had this for other projects like, or other um, products rather, or industries like clothing. I remember at the start of the channel, I was doing a lot of clothing brand reviews talking about how sustainable different things were using the good on you directory and the what's the ethical fashion guide ethical fashion guide uh, and they're really good uh, resources for anyone if you haven't heard of them head over to the website type in your favorite clothing brand and they should come up they give you a score from um, great to like we avoid and yeah pretty good information regarding their impact on planet people and animals anyway i remember i was doing an interview with someone and they're asking how how do you think consumers can fall victim less often to greenwashing because greenwashing as we know is massive in a lot of you know aspects but clothing's a really big one everyone you know one of my favorite brands from a content perspective uh i haven't bought any of their clothes just because they seem very um I don't know, unethical in that in that regard because they say made following, like when you're trying to buy the clothes, on the first picture, down the, like above the buy button, whatever, we've all seen it, it says made with ethical and sustainable practices in mind and it has like a link to a website and it's like 
we follow environmental guidelines and it's just like well fuck that's greenwashing anyway anyway so it would be good if we had like a conventional universal maybe even just like a local standard standard a local australian standard based on the environmental impact of clothing so you can actually see if it's greenwashing or it's not because like i mean if you're just trying to go down to uh like surf dive and ski or something i'm that's a pretty bad example because i'm sure everything in there is pretty bad um oh not all of it actually i think thrills is pretty good and offends offends is actually getting pretty good anyway um it would be helpful rather than having to get your phone out sit there and actually look it up because i'm sure a lot of people wouldn't do that um or when you're looking for clothes like say you stumble across something that you absolutely love and you know you may you may have questions about how sustainable it is and then you just you just see that the smallest thing like for that uh example that i gave i won't name them i almost did um if you're you know you're questioning or oh, i really want to look into how sustainable they are but they say made with ethical and sustainable practices in mind oh that's enough for me i'm gonna buy it rather than like taking your time to actually look into it which i mean is fair enough um but yeah just something that we got to work on as consumers but going back to the food aspect of this so supermarkets this is in the uk as well i believe let's see yeah uh british supermarket chain weight rose and partners uh, are ditching best before dates and asks shoppers to use their own judgment. And so this is over on uh, treehugger.com, which is a great website. Uh, great, uh, yeah, heaps of news on environment, animals, conservation, science, all of that incredible stuff. So starting in September, shoppers at British supermarket chain Weight Rose and Partners may notice a small yet significant difference. Nearly 500 fresh products will no longer have a best before date printed on them. This move is designed to reduce food waste by encouraging shoppers to use their own judgment as to whether a product is still good to eat rather than relying on a printed date. Products range from lettuce, cucumbers, peppers, tomatoes, mushrooms and celery to root vegetables, brassicas, don't know what that is, citrus, exotic fruits, apples, melons and more, as well as <laughs> indoor potted plants. Since when did indoor potted plants have expiry dates? That's the weirdest shit I've ever heard. Surely not. I mean, unless it's like those little, um, what are they called? Like herb, grow herbs at home. Not happy herbs, but, you know, a bit of basil, bit of basil in the kitchen. Surely indoor potted plants don't have, uh, I mean, no, and herbs. I don't know what's going on there. Um, potatoes happen to be the most wasted food in the United Kingdom, followed by bread and milk. So hopefully this change will curb some of that. So apparently, 75, oh, 70% of all food wasted in the UK happens at home. UK households throw away 4.5 million tonnes of edible food each year, meaning that all the energy and resources used in food production is wasted. See, I could see this going two ways, to be honest. Like, sometimes, obviously, I don't know, maybe this is just in my experience, but if something starts looking a bit sus, like if you've got some tomatoes that aren't looking that good, but then the used by date still gives you a couple days, then I would I would be more inclined to eat it than if there wasn't a used by date and these tomatoes were the exact same age, looked the exact same. Um, I'd probably bin them. I don't know if that makes sense, but not having a date could also make people more likely to throw it out out of like fear. I don't know if fear is the wrong word, but they might be a bit more skeptical to get rid of it before um 
before it actually is best before. But I do see what they mean. I guess it I guess it may in general use your own judgment. But yeah, so I mean pair this, pair ditching best before dates into eco labels, and the UK is flying ahead. So for our last story today, Bandicoot numbers boom in Dunbogan and Camden Haven after the 2019 bushfires. So this is back over on uh, ABC News. Incredible picture of a northern brown bandicoot living the absolute dream. Uh, kind of just like long-nosed rats, but we love them. We love bandicoots. So, residents in the township of Dumbogan on the New South Wales mid-north coast have been noticing an increasing numbers of small conical holes appearing in their gardens and lawns. They are created each night under the cover of darkness, and those in the know are quick to point out what's been digging around. Bandicoots are experiencing a boom in the town and surrounding Camden Haven region south of Port Macquarie. Um... And so this ranger is talking about how he always sees them in his garden. Uh, and the bush has come back. So they went through some pretty hectic fires back in 2019. But the bush has come back after the fires and the regrowth is really dense. And I think the bushfires probably removed a large number of local predatory animals. Things like foxes and feral cats. Uh, and the fires have potentially also displaced things like dingoes or wild dogs. In the coastal strip where I am, the species that are doing really well include the northern brown bandicoot and we occasionally see the great long-nosed bandicoot, which, bit of a plug here, I found for my conservation project, we're doing camera trapping in uh, Coastal June. So, you know, make sure to follow along at uh, fairly lame underscore on TikTok and Instagram to see all those cute images. But this is why these bandicoots are doing uh, so well. And so, where are we down here? After a fire has gone through, it opens up the habitat and provides new food sources that animals like bandicoots can access. The heavy rains after the fires have probably also led to an increase in the complexity and density of the undergrowth and an increase in food uh, sources. <laughs> the bandicoots can move in and do quite well. Uh, that is if there aren't many foxes and cats in the area. Uh, in some areas like the Blue Mountains, there's been a lot of monitoring happening after big fires. Fox and cat activity hasn't seemed to be as extensive after the fires as we may have uh, expected. And so apparently, northern brown bandicoots, eastern brown bandicoots, like to uh, get into their work often. So they can reproduce uh, three, four, five times each year and have a gestation period of just 12 to 13 days. They give birth to <laughs> baked bean-sized youngsters that attach in the pouch, and within a couple months, uh, they are weaned, and the female is free to breed again. I mean, that's incredible. Bandicoots, one of their biggest benefits is that they turn over the soil by digging these holes. You know, it makes pockets that water can settle in uh, rather than just skimming off the top. Turns it over, adds some organic nutrients through their uh, defecation, uh, help spread seeds, those sorts of things, um, and also just great for biodiversity. But like pretty much every mammal here in Australia, being absolutely smashed with feral cats, uh, foxes, everything under the sun. So it's great to see these guys doing really well. Hopefully there's not an overabundance issue because then that will leave... Because like predator populations pretty much... They, they follow 
prey populations, but on a bit of a delay. So if there's a rapid increase in bandicoot numbers, then the cats and foxes will increase. And then that will mean the bandicoots will decrease. And then a bit like a short time after, then the foxes and cats will decrease as well because there's not enough food to go around. So, I mean, hopefully there's some cat and fox control going on in these areas. I mean, dingoes surely let the let the dingoes kick about, but yeah, very interesting to see. But that is our last feel-good conservation story for this week's Fairly Lame podcast. As always, head over to fairlylame underscore on Instagram and TikTok. Catch all the videos over there from my conservation project, but also just like random videos I think about all surrounding conservation feel-good stories. As always, next week, we will be back on Monday at 3 p.m., uh, yeah, after work fix of, you know, just a bit of happiness. A bit of happiness to get your Monday back on track, living the dream, and, yeah, like and subscribe. Swipe up, baby, swipe up. Anyway, I'm Dom, and we'll see you guys next week.